welcome to Sexy Health with Stash. I'm Beth. And I'm Lily. And this is the podcast where we talk all about sex, baby, as we explore the world of genital urinary medicine. Lily, tell me, how was your week? My week has been great, Beth. I mean, we're only a few days in and I've had a day off today because I'm on nights this weekend. And I just love a day off. I've been to Morrison's. I've done a hair mask. And that literally, literally is it. What about you? How's your week been? My week has been good. I got a fringe. Um, (gasps) Yes, it looks so good. You're going to have to give me tips. I don't know why I thought... (laughs) I'm such an awkward person already. So I don't know why I thought a fringe wouldn't sit awkwardly. But of course it does. No, it looks so good. Thank you. You flatter me. And should we talk a bit about who we have on the show today? Yeah, I'm so excited. I I know I'm excited every week, but this week I'm really excited. Yes. Um, So let me introduce... Dr. Naomi Sutton. Dr. Naomi Sutton is a Sheffield graduate who has been working as a consultant in Rotherham Sexual Health Services since 2016. Throughout her career, Dr. Sutton has developed a passion for education and raising awareness of sexual health for both healthcare professionals and the general public. She has created PHSE sex education materials with the charity You Before Too and raised awareness of gynecological cancers with the Eve Appeal. And that passion has also brought her to our screens in Channel 4's Steph's Packed Lunch and E4's legendary The Sex Clinic and into our ears with her new podcast, HIV in Focus. So I am so, so, so excited to introduce Dr. Naomi Sutton. Oh, thank you very much. It's a a pleasure to be chatting to you. How are you today, Naomi? I'm a bit... I'm a little bit croaky post-COVID, so please forgive my um, voice. Although maybe it makes me sound dead sexy. <laughs> I think so. I absolutely think so. Okay, so th- this question might sound odd, but Beth is obsessed with it. Basically, I think there's a, a hashtag that's like hashtag love gum. Um, and yeah. Beth wants us to ask everyone on the podcast, why do they hashtag love gum? Gum. Can you tell I hate it asking that, Beth? So we want to ask you, Naomi, why do you why do you love gum? <laughs> oh God, it, I think this question is really difficult because it's I love everything about it. So there's so many different aspects. So we were talking earlier, weren't we, about you know for me it fits in with lifestyle. So you know I go to clinic, it's set hours. You know it's good for running a family and all the rest of it. But I love the speciality. Um, it's so positive. You can manage everything that comes through the door. Um, you can either cure it or make it better or even just by talking about things you can relieve people's anxiety and stress and um, I get a lot of pleasure from um, making people feel better making them laugh Um, and it's a real skill and I think anyone can learn it if you're especially if you're an empathetic sort of person gum attracts or gum or sexual health attracts a certain type of person I think if you are that kind of person you get a lot out of that patient interaction and feeling you know, like you've made a difference to someone and there's nothing nicer than when someone leaves a room and says, thank you so much and you know they've meant it. So for me, that's what it's all about. And, you know, I mean, it's led me down lots of exciting paths and, you know, career career changes, um, which, you know, just add a different dimension and keep life interesting, keep me on my toes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You've had such a varied career doing I mean as we already mentioned lots and lots of media work especially and um, raising awareness for the general public do you have 
a moment in your career that is like the highlight or the career defining moment for you? Doing the sex clinic really changed um, I guess how I felt about myself as well and what I felt I could achieve so you know I was just I say just you know I was a consultant in sexual health I've been there about 18 months in Rotherham and um, I'll tell you the story of how I got involved because people ask me that a lot I was sitting watching um, a swimming gala and then this Twitter message came through and it said, hi, we're looking for a sexual health consult or doctor to, to come on this TV programme. And I was like, oh, no way. I'm not media savvy at all. Um, and so I, I said to my husband that night, brushing our teeth, I said, what What do you think about, about telly? And he was like, absolutely not. Do not even go there. And I was like, okay. And then uh, went down and you know dropped the kids off at school and all the school mums were like, Naomi, you'd be brilliant. Do it, do it. So uh, so anyway, I spoke to this woman and I, I love my job. I really love my job and I really love teaching and um, getting healthy messages out there. So I think I just bamboozled this poor lady with my enthusiasm for the subject. And then I had to do um, a Skype call to check that I didn't have a face for radio. <laughs> you know what I mean? so, so I made my hair really big, which is the only reason I got the job. And then you had to go for casting and all the rest of it. But I think for me, it taught me, first of all, that what I learned in medical school and actually what I learned through training was not what people and the general public want to know. So I think one of my main changes, I guess, to how I now practice medicine is, you know, we're taught in medical school, chlamydia is an intracellular organism and, you know, you need to not, not do this, do that, whatever. And we have our own script that we feel we need to be telling people and actually, patients aren't interested in what we have to say most of the time. They have their own questions. And I think when you accept that and you sit there and let them ask what they want to know, it really does open up um, lots of conversations and conversations that I didn't feel equipped to answer. So things about orgasming and lube and, you know, dry vaginas. And, you know, I was like, well, I don't, I don't know. They don't teach us this in medical school. So it set me on a really different path and I'm really focus now on psychosexual medicine so I'm going to Budapest in um in November to do a 10-day course with the European Society of Sexual Medicine so anyone who's interested in psychosexual medicine it's a really you know amazing thing you can do an exam which I hope to in 2024 but um but it's really difficult to get teaching on orgasm problems and you know erectile dysfunction all these kind of things that actually really matter to the general public um, and you know, things like desire, you know, all these things, what we talk, you know, when, when we're, when we're taught in medical school, I think I had this strange desire model that, you know, you, you get aroused plateau and then you have an orgasm <laughs> if you're lucky and then it disappears. What we know now about design, what I'm learning about design now is totally different. And so I think when you open yourself up to what, um, what patients want, it takes you down lots of different avenues. Um, and I'd love medical school to have a bit more teaching about the psychosocial aspects mm. of healthcare because I think it's important in every aspect um so you know I often have medical students sitting with me and that I've just come from cardiology for example and I say did anyone talk about sex to someone who just had a heart attack or whatever and, and did they bring that up and you know when you actually get when you actually say to people what do you want to know the vast majority is when can I start having sex or what, you know, sex is really important to lots of people, but people don't talk yeah. about it. And we don't bring that conversation up because we all feel weird and strange. And, you know, so again, and it's thinking about, you know, what does that person want to know? How are they going to go home and then manage in their home 
with their following a heart attack? What's their biggest worry? It's probably, is it going to happen again? Definitely. But, you know, can I carry on as normal? Can I walk my dog? Can I be intimate with my yeah. wife again? And I just think we need to be thinking, putting ourselves, really putting ourselves in people's shoes and trying to think about what they want rather than us take your aspirin, do that, you know, that's our agenda. Um, so, yeah, I forgot what the question was then. So, yeah, highlights. <laughs> oh, God, I do waffle. We love um, it. We love it. But, yeah, so <laughs> so definitely the sex clinic took me on a totally different, you know, mind-blowingly um, uh, trip, I suppose, without any drugs. And, you know, made me realise how ill-equipped I was, despite being a consultant, to do the job I was doing. Um, so, yeah, it's really just open up my eyes and you know, things like education you know and then that's what kind of uh, stimulated the uh, working on these sex education products for schools and um you know just just banging on whenever I can about good healthy sex messages it's so refreshing hearing you talk about that I think I've yeah I've often thought about specifically patients after stroke I think cause that's a lot of what I have on my job at the moment um mm. i'm thinking just the the vast life and physical changes that your body has gone through rehabilitating yeah. yourself into sex and intimacy must be it must be hard i don't know if it's i assume it's hard but i don't know because i haven't mm. been told about it or taught about it i also don't ask about it because obviously the remits of my job don't reach that far in general um but i think but then who's 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 well, yeah does? yeah so even saying so, that I so think... you know i I'd argue that, you know, you're the perfect person because you have an interest in it. Just to sit there, you know, take 10 minutes out, hold their hand and just say, you know, do you have a partner or whatever? And and again, the way we're taught about sex, I feel is totally wrong. So we're taught that, you know, if you're a heterosexual, it's penis into vagina. That's mm. what sex is. Well, then what does make, what, what sex for women who have sex with women and men who have sex with men? And, you know, what when does when is sex sex you know if you just have oral sex or solo sex is that not sex it's all sex and so I think sometimes we get we box ourselves and especially as heterosexuals and there's some horrendous stats out there on orgasms and heterosexuals um you know most of the time heterosexual sex finishes with the man orgasming um often the women is the woman is um a secondary gain I suppose um and uh, you know one thing that really irritates me is I didn't know how big a clitoris was as in the whole organ I've got one here look I know it's not video but you know this is a real size um picture of a clitoris and I remember doing the anatomy of the penis you don't do the anatomy of the clitoris no because it's not in textbooks and things so again there's a big there's a big gender gap in sexual health um which again I'm trying to put right but again, you know, for people who've post-stroke, I think it's important to say there are other ways to be intimate mm. and there are other, you know, things like, um, you know, touching, kissing, massage, all those things, they're still sexual intimacy, aren't they? And so even if you can't physically <clears throat> put penis into vagina or whatever you used to do, it doesn't mean that, you know, that has to stop. And I think just a nice, gentle, opening conversation with people can be really, really helpful. And it, I, I feel like you could be forgiven from the sort of the lack of teaching that we have in medical school about these issues that it talking about yeah. um desire talking about sex and sexual experiences mm -hmm. is something that's 
only relevant for if you're working in a sexual health clinic or if you're mm. a GP mm-hmm. that takes an interest in that kind of thing. Um, but actually, it's pretty much every area of medicine. Um, it, it's yeah. it's relevant. Um, and yeah. I 100% agree. And when you think about human needs, so if you look at you know the hierarchy of what we need as human beings, it's kind of food and shelter, totally granted. You're not going to want to be bonking if you haven't got those things sorted out. But actually after that comes some human bond of some sort. So be it, you know, really good friendships or some connection, but the vast majority of human beings want some human connection. Often that's in some form of sexual way. So, you know, either holding hands or what, you know, and and it it varies massively with everybody. Um, And again, what what I'd say to doctors, because people come into the clinic and think doctors know everything about everything because we're, we come out of medical school, we're supposed to know everything about everything, which is ridiculous. And we've all got to, I think, look at our own background, our own culture, our own opinions on sex. So what really annoys me is when um, trainee doctors come in and go, no, no, I'm non-judgmental. I'm like, well, that's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. We all judge. We're the most judgy things in the world. So we're all judgmental, but it's about understanding where that judgment yeah. is coming from and not letting that out in the room if it's inappropriate and and kind of I think thinking why am I feeling awkward talking about anal sex for example you know what what is it about my background is this correct the way I'm feeling is this coming out in this kind of anxiety and you know that there's nothing worse than sitting in with a trainee who feels awkward because the whole atmosphere of the room is really tense and it's awful and everyone's awkward and the patient feels all that um just like anybody does you know you sense if somebody doesn't want to talk about something um so yeah I think it's about us thinking where our own teachings come from and really reflecting on whether it's appropriate or you know was that wrong or you know so again doing the sex clinic and doing all this media stuff has really made me reflect on my background and my own weird thinkings about sex and bodies and vulvas and you know all these I mean I used to think vulvas were ugly I can't believe I can say this but I used to be like oh oh gross gross <laughs> and that's because I was brought up thinking vulvas were ugly you know at school it was like oh fishy fannies and mm. you know burger lips or wh- whatever they call them and it's dread. it's a really dreadful place to be I think so again it's about thinking about where all these things stem from and trying to counteract those with sensible, helpful, well-educated advice. Labia libraries, for anyone who's listening who doesn't like vulvas, have a look at labia libraries because, you know, it's it's very helpful to know that your vulva is within the normal range of beautiful. Oh, that's very <laughs> sweet. <laughs> I think you've sort of hinted the answers for our next question, but... How good or bad do you think healthcare professionals are <laughs> at talking to patients about sex? Well, I'd say generally, generally bad. Um, and again, I, again, I think what we've got to remember is that I don't think we should judge ourselves too harshly because we're all bound by the same social media, movies, religion, culture. You know, we're all brought up in the same society. So, you know, why should we be amazing at talking about sex when the rest of the public aren't you know it's ridiculous to think Mm. we're suddenly 
brilliant at doing this kind of thing. But what I think is really important as a medical professional is that you think about why you're bad at it if you feel awkward. Um, so, mm. you know, I never blame anybody for finding it difficult because it, you'd probably be abnormal if you didn't. But I think, again, you've got to think, OK, how can I how can I cross these barriers? You know, what what can I do to to make myself feel less awkward and sometimes that's just quite a lot of soul searching and you know really analyzing where your views come from so naomi we've already kind of mentioned things like the size of the clitoris or that sort of orgasm wave you were talking about are there any other like really common myths that you encounter about pleasure and desire amongst patients or amongst healthcare professionals or just general public yes lots (laughs) so I think desire is so people talk about libido or sex drive and you know eat some go-go berries or (laughs) mussels whatever and suddenly your desire will be sorted it's such rubbish (laughs) so I think again thinking about the psychosocial uh, model of kind of sex is is much more um relevant especially when you talk about desire so the biggest reason well one of the biggest reasons for people going to seek sexual therapy sex relationship therapy is lack of desire so yes there are some medical um reasons why your desire might be going off the off the shoot so you know thyroid problems or different drugs or um hormone changes etc etc but by far the biggest issue is the relationship So you're in a long-term relationship. So to quote one of my sex gurus, Karen Gurney, follow her on Instagram. She's under the sex doctor. So she's a psychotherapist. Oh, yeah, yeah, I like her. Yeah, so she's written a book, Mind the Gap, um, and done some TED Talks and things. And, you know, what she just... She's really good at at expressing it really simply. But um, especially for women, so I sell it a little bit even simpler. Men are a little bit like microwaves. So see some sexy lady in sexy knickers and they're like, ping, ready to go. <laughs> Whereas women are a little bit more like a fan oven and they've got lots of different dials and, you know, different temperatures and it's got to be just right. And then otherwise the chicken isn't cooking properly. Um, so we are a little bit more complicated. And when we're younger and in a new relationship, um, desire is often the same as a man. So we can be like a microwave. We can be mm. like, oh yeah, four. But as, you know, long-term relationships, are difficult to maintain that desire and it's because we lose any mystery or any Mm. um uh secrecy i suppose between that couple so you just end up being like brother and sister um and you know you're kind of just used to eating you know karen explains it as you know you go to the same restaurant you eat the same dinner in the same order the same staff the same main the same dessert however lovely it was at the start it gets a bit boring. So it's about thinking, how can we change this up and how can we make it different? And um, so now we understand that female desire is much more on a kind of a sexual neutrality. So um, it's not spontaneous. It's um, it's initiated desire. So we almost need to be warmed up. So mm. Karen talks about kind of sexual currency. So, you know, flirting, kissing, touching, sending a text in the day, all those things that long-term partners generally forget about. Um, but if you can get those things back going, the female's much more likely then, I know we're talking about heterosexual couples, um, but the female's much more likely then to to be responsive, mm. lean into the kiss. And, and then all the physical things, so the arousal, then happens. But you've got to have the desire first to get the arousal going. So it's mm. almost looking at, so, which is why, again, 
you know, saying this is totally normal. You know, people come into my clinic and go, I think there's something wrong with me because, you know, I'm just, don't fancy it. I'm broken or whatever else mm-hmm. they ha- might describe it as. And actually just saying this is really normal and maybe doing some, you know, simple things like, um, you know, going on date night but or going on date night, you know, sending a sexy text or, you know, just actually spending time together can make a massive difference. Mm. Um, and again, you know, I think therapy is really undervalued in this country. I know in America, everyone goes to therapy and it's seen as everyone's in therapy. But actually, you know, I think sex and relationship therapy is left until people are on the point of divorcing. And so if people could could see it as a, a healthy way to maintain a relationship, um, I think, again, we'd be better. But also just, just being normal. You know, like people don't rip each other's clothes off and have sex three times a week. It just doesn't happen. Some people do. But, you know, when you look at the Natsal <laughs> data, the last one that came out, you know, we've gone from in the 80s having sex four to five times a month to now a couple of times a month. So that's average. So, you know, and again, it's about quality. Mm. And again, it's not about having to be penis and vagina and the, the focus being on orgasm. You know, we can focus more on um, pleasure, which is, you know, rather than it being um, about how it should look and how the sex narrative has to be. And I was thinking, so I'm, I'm kind of going back a little bit, but um, when I think about the things that stop, that sometimes get in the way of me wanting to have a conversation with patients about desire, for example, is, I, you know, I remember doing like a couple of STI mm. lectures at medical school and, um, you know, it was probably pretty much mm. all STIs in one lecture and then HIV in another one. Mm. I don't remember really having a lecture that talked about desire or having a lecture that yeah. talked about things like lube or any of the other things that go with sex. And so I think like a lot of healthcare professionals, you do feel that um, you have that feeling of, I, I don't know if I'm yeah. going to be giving out good advice like I feel like a lot of what I know yeah. is from reading Cosmopolitan <laughs> as opposed to from from what I've been taught at medical school um and it's yeah and, and obviously patients ask some at times yeah. very disarming questions and you can sort of get in your head and feel like oh gosh if I start exploring this I don't know if I'm gonna gonna be helpful really yeah and that's a really common problem cited for why people don't open up those conversations. They don't know what to do with the information. Yeah. So, you know, people just don't start this because they're like, oh, I don't know anything about desire. Oh, I'm not going to ask about it. But I think sometimes just just letting someone offload and talk and then saying, mm. oh, blimey, well, you know, this is maybe how I think about it if you have any kind of information and then going away and, and coming back to that topic. Yeah. So we learn by being asked a question that that challenges us. So what I would say is if you're feeling challenged, which is kind of what I did with the sex clinic, I felt so challenged and out of my depth with people asking all sorts, like about which lube. I was like, well, that's not my job. I'm a, I'm a doctor. Of course it's my job. Um, you know, things like vaginismus, you know, what do you actually do with vaginismus mm. patients? And, you know, how do you deal with them when you don't have good psychosexual referral pathways and you know things like that so there's loads of things that you can challenge yourself and and go away and learn and read and you know I think as long as and and again just saying I'm really sorry and just saying you're you can just say your own perspective and 
you know, if you've listened to this podcast, go, I remember some, you know, doctor talking about desire being really difficult, long-term relationships. That's probably enough. Just making it normal. You know, I think just um, accepting that people will struggle and, you know, 50% of over 50-year-olds will have some form of sexual difficulty, be that desire or something else. So we've talked a bit about how to how to make sure you're continuing that conversation but I wonder how would you initiate that conversation with a patient not in the context of a sexual health clinic because I mean if someone comes to a sexual health clinic they're Mm. expecting to talk a bit about it yeah totally yeah um and so that that really does help open up the conversation Mm. um but in a in a hospital patient or a primary care patient who's maybe not expecting you to ask about sex how would you how would you approach that well I mean if I'm totally honest I was probably appalling at talking about sex outside of sexual health so I'm lying if I say oh I was amazing I used to always have these chats with my stroke (laughs) patients and my heart patients I wish I could go back and do it all again so I'm you know I'm preaching to to well I'm preaching something that I know that I'll be honest I didn't do um, yeah. But again, I think that's again from lack of knowledge. I wish mm. someone had, I wish I'd listened to this podcast and gone, oh yeah, that's really interesting. I think again, it would depend on the age of the patient and you know being culturally sensitive about things. But I think just sort of you know say, is there anything you're worried about when you're going home? Are you worried about how you and your partner will connect again? You're being kind of subtle, or you know not going in with. When did you last have sex? Mm. (laughs) That could be, whoa, where's that come from? So I think, you know, if it's a patient that you're seeing on the ward, you often have a little bit of an idea about what's going on and just have a general chat, sit down, take it away from the ward round, don't do it in front of everyone and just go, I was just thinking, you know, about how, you know, whether you've got any worries or concerns about, you know, what it's going to be like moving around the house or, you know, getting to and from the shots, walking the dog and, you know, possibly being intimate again or, you know, have you thought about that? Something along those lines, make it very general. And then I think in primary Mm. care, again, the same sort of things. I think just saying, you know, is, again, it will depend on that patient context, but if you know that they are with someone or not with someone, um, you know, if they're younger, I'd always say, um, you know, should we do a sexual health screen? Because that's really important. You know, there's a massive burden of chlamydia in under 25s. Um, so you could open it up that way and then talking about sexual difficulties I think just sort of say you know if there's any if there's ever any difficulties or concerns that you want to discuss please know that my door's open you can always just drop it into conversation I suppose it is difficult I don't think there's a good thing and again I think that's a judgment on um, that specific consultation there isn't a right or a wrong um but I think try what works for you and again the way I say something might not work for somebody else so you know even within our um within our consultant group we all we we all consult very differently um so some people will love the way I consult and others might go which is a bit much or you know so so you know again it's it's judging and I do I promise I do rein it in um you know but again it's about sensing what's going on in the room and about picking up those little cues and, you know, and and often a really powerful thing is if you're feeling really anxious, you're feeling anxious because there's something going on between in this consultation. So sometimes I just say, blimey, 
I'm I'm feeling really anxious. You know, how mm. are you feeling worried? What what are you worried about? So say someone comes in for a coil, for example, they'll sit down. Sometimes you can just feel like this anxiety coming off them. So before I start waffling on about what we're going to do, I just yeah. say, okay, you're looking really terrified. Let's deal with that first. So oh, what are you worried about? Blah, blah, blah. So again, it's picking up on those things and addressing them early mm. because that will shorten your consultation time massively because you'll get to the crux of of their agenda i guess it's kind of it's kind of like trickle up sexonomics like if we have better sex ed at school and parents are better talking about it and then we then have better sex education for medical students and we have the wider public being better at talking about it then we create doctors who are better at talking about it totally yeah and yeah let's get out of the um, let's get out of these strange sex narratives that we tell each other and, you know, let's be more honest with what's going on, um, you know, within our friend groups and things. Because, again, you know, the, the number of people mm. who hide behind this, you know, everyone else is having amazing sex. And and then, you know, again, we're, we're all, you know, we're all vulnerable, sad human beings, all <laughs> trying to navigate this very complicated um, world of sex and intimacy. And it is really complicated. And it won't be the same for, you know, it won't be the same for, every, you know, there are no two people alike, I don't think. Um, we all have our own strange thoughts and processes going on. Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much. Naomi Sutton, everybody. Well, thank you so much for Woo! listening. Uh, just a quick plug for our social media. So look us up on Instagram at stash underscore UK. So that's S-T-A-S-H-H, Students and Trainees Association for Sexual Health. Um, and as always, thank you so much to our wonderful editor, Izzy. Woo!